Welcome to the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter. We've got some guests on today. We've got Macy Chasson, who's going to be uh, joining us while in quarantine. And also uh, Shane Burgos and his teammate Lyman Good both joining us. Lyman Good was the first UFC fighter to come out and say that he had been diagnosed and uh, has since recovered from the coronavirus. So they'll be joining us. But I don't really want to talk about the coronavirus today outside of that interview. We've talked a lot about the coronavirus. These fights are happening now, it looks like. I mean, nothing uh, will be preventing them thus far that we've heard from uh, happening next weekend, Saturday, May the 9th at the Star Memorial Arena in Jacksonville. So let's talk about these fights because this card is wild. And it takes a second for you to really take a step back and think about how this card came together. Because looking at it from top to bottom, it's a great card. But on top of that, like there are some fights here that, you know, it, it takes a second for it to really click as to what we're getting here. And I'm talking mostly about the main and co-main event. Because the main event, Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje, and I've, I've made this comparison before. It's like if you asked your parents for like a Sega Genesis for Christmas. I'm, I'm an old guy, so if you don't know about Sega Genesis, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sorry about that. But uh, it's like if you asked for a Sega Genesis for Christmas and then you ended up getting a Super Nintendo. The Genesis being Tony versus Khabib and Super Nintendo being Ferguson versus Gaethje. You know, you thought you wanted the Genesis, but uh, you never knew you wanted the Super Nintendo, and that's what you ended up getting. Both of these are great. Genesis is great. It's got Eternal Champions. Super Nintendo is great. It's got the Mario games. You know, there's a whole lot to like here. With both Ferguson versus Khabib and Ferguson versus Gaethje. Now, Ferguson versus Khabib is the most intriguing fight you can make in MMA right now. But in terms of just sheer entertainment value, Ferguson versus Gaethje has every ingredient to be one of the most exciting fights that we will ever see in the UFC. Whether or not it delivers, who knows? We'll see. You know, everybody thought Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis was going to be a banger. Ended up being a snooze fest. It happens. But I just don't see any way where this fight does not deliver. It has to deliver. Just look at the last couple fights of both these guys. Look at the Ferguson versus Pettis fight, Ferguson versus Cerrone. Look at Gaethje versus Cerrone, Gaethje versus Vic, Gaethje versus Barboza, Gaethje versus anybody, insert name here. They're all incredible fights. So if you take both fighters who deliver time and time and time again, you have a recipe for an explosive, entertaining affair. And I think that Ferguson versus Gaethje is going to deliver just that. But let's let's just peel back the layers of the onion here for one second because you really need to look at this fight for it to click and think, wow, this is just an amazing turn of events. Because if you're not going to get Ferguson versus Khabib, which, again, we're not going to get. It's the fifth time they tried to make it. It's not happening. This is one heck of a, of a consolation prize. Because it's got an interim title attached, but I think everybody kind of knows that that interim title is just, you know, it's a token. Because, But, but let's just say this. It does shelve talks of Khabib versus Connor, that rematch that everybody thought was going to happen later this year. Because if Tony Ferguson wins the interim title again, you have to make that fight next. You have to make Tony versus Khabib, barring some sort of catastrophic injury. And if Gaethje wins the interim title, you've got to make Gaethje versus Khabib next. Again, barring some sort of catastrophic injury. Those fights need to happen next. For Tony, it's a very risky fight. You know, Justin Gaethje is a risky proposition for anybody, but Tony is putting a 12-fight win streak on the line. He's putting the undisputed top contender title on the line, whatever that means. 
But, uh, you know, you can't dispute where Tony Ferguson stands in this division right now. He's putting all that on the line. So when you look at what we have here, you've got just a, a recipe for an incredible, incredible night. Not just Ferguson Gaethje, but also the, the remainder of the card, and we'll get to that. But when you just look at this fight, I'm just curious to see which Gaethje shows up. Because I watched all of Gaethje's fights recently. I watched the Alvarez fight. I watched the Poirier fight. And then, of course, I watched his most recent fights, the three-fight win streak, and, of course, the Michael Johnson fight, his debut. But we saw a markedly different fighter in the last three fights. We saw a Justin Gaethje that was a little bit more measured. Still kind of threw caution to the wind a little bit. But he didn't get into the kind of slugfests that he had gotten into previously. Now, I don't know if that's just... Um, because he's been more measured, or because his power was just so much that these guys, if they engaged with him, they got put away. I don't know if his technique has improved. I don't know what what he has done to make himself such a dangerous first-round fighter, because he has first-round finishes previously, sure. But just go, looking back at his resume, this isn't the type of guy that was dependent on one-punch power to win fights. Like This was the type of guy that would throw volume. I mean, he's the all-time leading uh, fighter in terms of volume in the UFC, uh, both significant strikes thrown and or significant strikes landed, rather, and significant strikes absorbed. Like you know, that, That's his go-to. We saw him get first-round finishes in the World Series of Fighting. We saw it against Brian Foster. We saw it against Richard Patishnok. We saw it uh, against uh, Jay-Z Cavalcante. He has a 12-second finish over UFC veteran Drew Fickett back in the day. Again, this is uh, almost uh, eight years ago that that happened, but most of the time, you're seeing him go into the later rounds, round three, round two. Uh, He went into the championship rounds for the first time against Dustin Poirier, only lasted 33 seconds in that round. But judging from his resume, he's he's a three-round fighter. He's been in a lot of five-round fights, that have been scheduled for five rounds, but he's a do-or-die fighter, and uh, the later in the fight it gets, the less dangerous he becomes. Now, when you look at uh, his fight against Palomino, that uh, that almost got to the uh, the fourth round. His fight against Firmino was a doctor's stoppage at the end of the third round. But then his fights against Alvarez and Poirier, as it got later on, he became less and less dangerous. And I think Gaethje's acknowledged that. He's acknowledged that he has two rounds to put Ferguson away. Now, that was if the fight was going to be April 18th. I think he does have a little bit more of a, res- a reserve for this fight in terms of his gas tank because he'll he'll have had more time to train. Training with the likes of Drew Dober. Uh, I know Kamaru Usman came in and trained with him as well. We saw a couple guys uh, managed by Dominance MMA come in, including his, his manager, Ali Abdelaziz, that were coming in and training with Gaethje for this particular fight. And, of course, he's got uh, the mastermind, Travis Whitman, with that big smile in his corner. Just embracing every moment of chaos that is about to occur. As he looks around the arena, this time it'll be an empty arena, but I'm sure he'll still have a big smile on his face because he gets to watch two of the most entertaining fighters collide, and he gets to be in charge of the joystick for one of them. And that's Justin Gaethje. Justin Gaethje, a ball of energy that cannot be contained over the course of three rounds. So we uh, we look at, ahead to this fight, and if we do see a more measured Justin Gaethje, 
that's going to be his best path because the problem is Ferguson doesn't give people room to breathe either. These two both have suffocating offense. And when you, when you put that into play and you look at what both of these guys are going to bring to the table, we're talking about 25 minutes potentially of chaos. And if Tony Ferguson takes that approach, I think Gaethje's going to get he's going to take the bait because that's Gaethje's game. That's Gaethje's ball game is to go get into these situations where they get turned to a brawl and one must fall. And that rhymes and I I was not planning that. So good on me for that one. It's a brawl where one must fall. And I think that whoever breaks first is going to lose this fight. And we've seen Gagey break in the past when it's just been too much volume and too much to take with Alvarez and Poirier. And, I mean, he he doesn't get go out cold. I mean, you know, Gagey is not the kind of guy. Like, he still wants to keep going after he gets put down by these guys. But you also have to look at the fact that in two years, Gagey has fought a total of a round and a half, pretty much. When you look at Vic, Barboza, and Cerrone, the damage just isn't there. He hasn't taken damage in two years. Whereas if you look at Ferguson, and what Ferguson has taken over the last two years, you look at his fights with Pettis, you look at his fights, his fight with uh, Cerrone, like there's a lot of damage in those fights. Just looking at the fight metric page for both these guys, in terms of strikes absorbed over the last two years. So we had... Uh, and this is kind of a year and a half for 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 Ferguson. Ferguson absorbed a total of about 113 strike significant strikes. And then you look at what Gage has absorbed over the last two years, and he's absorbed a total of 40 strikes, 40 significant strikes. And that's over three fights versus Ferguson's two fights. So in terms of sheer damage over the last two years. Ferguson has absorbed a lot more damage. You know, a lot of people think that Justin Gaethje, uh, you know, he's punch drunk. He's taking too much damage. That can't. That's not the case the last two years. And then you look at the uh, significant, significant strikes line per minute. Ferguson, 5.81. And uh, absorbing 3.75. Gaethje, 8.57 strikes line per, uh, significant strikes lines per minute. But he's absorbed 9.67 significant strikes per minute. That's a lot. Like that's that's one significant strike every six seconds. But I do think that a lot of that comes from his first three fights in the UFC, where he, he took a ton of punishment. He won one of those fights when he beat Michael Johnson. But the other two fights against Poirier and Alvarez, there's no way around it. He took a lot of damage. He took more damage in those two fights than Ferguson has pretty much in the last six years of his career. If you look at just significant strikes. So, when you when you take a, a, a shorter sample size, it's advantageous to Gaethje. But if you look at the, the big picture, I think that Ferguson has taken a lot less damage over his career than Justin Gaethje has. I, I don't think there's any way around that, and I think that you'd be a fool to argue otherwise. Ferguson's one loss to Michael Johnson, a decision, never been finished in the UFC. So... This is going to be just an interesting, interesting fight, and uh, you know when you when you look at the at the facts, it's hard not to think that Tony Ferguson is going to be able to to do this. But Ferguson's also getting older. Ferguson just turned thirty six back in February. Gaethje, only thirty one years of age. 
So Gaethje is kind of in his prime, whereas Ferguson, you can argue, might be past his prime. Uh, you know, I don't know what evidence there is to support that, aside from just the number next to, you know, the number that's on his birth certificate. Because if if he does end up winning the championship, he'll be the oldest champion in UFC history, lightweight champion, rather, in UFC history. So just looking at this particular circumstance, this is one of those situations where I think that this this fight just again could go either way, but I you know I think that looking at the evidence, Ferguson probably has a bit of an advantage, especially if it turns into a Justin Gaethje style fight. I still think that Ferguson is going to be more measured. I think that Ferguson um, will be able to be a little bit more elusive than Gaethje. I think he's going to hit hit and not get hit, and that's probably his plan going to this fight: is hit and not get hit. And it's hard against Justin Gaethje because he's going to walk forward and he's going to throw volume at you, and you're going to get hit. But if Gaethje decides to be a little bit more measured and rely on his power, I'm not sure if that's the best strategy against against Tony Ferguson because, you know, Tony Ferguson is not the kind of guy to, you know, to to, to get hit by shots like that, by, by these methodical shots. I think that the better strategy for Gaethje might be just to implement the, the balls-to-the-wall Justin Gaethje strategy that we've seen in the past. We've seen against Alvarez. We've seen against Poirier and see if Tony Ferguson can take the heat when he's in the kitchen. Because we've seen that opponents of Ferguson's haven't been able to, but we haven't seen Ferguson really get pressured like that. You know, the last time we did was against Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos landed 121 uh, significant strikes against him. But Ferguson landed about 200 in that fight. So both guys were able to take the heat, but Ferguson was able to get the decision. So I I just can't wait for this particular main event. I'm glad that it came together this way, and I'm glad that this is what we ended up with because this is the fight I think that nobody else really wanted. Now, in terms of the co-main event, Henry Cejudo versus Dominic Cruz, this is another one that's just like, you got to just do a double take and be like, what, Dominic Cruz? Fighting for the title again? I went back and watched a lot of Dominic Cruz this week as well. And he's he's just a master. He's an unbelievable fighter. And the other thing about Dominic Cruz is he's still only 35 years old, just turned 35. Like, this isn't the guy that's 37, 38. Like, Dominic Cruz has been at it for a long time. But, you know, the injuries have kept him out. But, uh, you know, so Hudo right now is at the top of the game. He's at the top of the food chain. And Dominic Cruz is going to probably have to outpoint Henry Cejudo over five rounds to get a win here. I don't think he's going to get a finish against I mean, Cejudo is super durable. Only guy to finish him is uh, Demetrius Johnson. And he's improved leaps and bounds since then. It's hard to argue otherwise. So this fight I cannot wait to watch. Now, you know, I don't know if Dominic Cruz is the rightful challenger in terms of the pecking order, in terms of the meritocracy of the division. But I certainly cannot argue it from a promotional standpoint. I mean, Cruz is the best bantamweight of all time. If he wins this fight, he's back on top. And it's, I think, one of the most legendary stories in the history of MMA. For him to come back twice from a major injury and win the title, that's absolutely unheard of, almost in pro sports as a whole. It would be like if a quarterback tore his ACL, came back, won a Super Bowl, tore his ACL again, missed a season, came back and won another Super Bowl. Like, it, it, I don't know if that's ever, has that ever happened? Because that's basically what this is. So if Cruz were to come and, and win this fight against Cejudo, it's still amazing to me that Cruz is fighting in a week. Like This fight came out of nowhere. It's it's still almost impossible to, to digest this fight. 
let alone assess it, because it, it just came together so quickly. Aldo not able to travel to the U.S., so who needs an opponent? Basically, two options are Cruz and Sandhagen. Because Sandhagen was apparently in talks to fight Sterling, and Sterling doesn't want to fight under these circumstances. He's in New York. It's basically a war zone there right now in terms of the coronavirus. And I know I said I wouldn't mention the coronavirus, but it's applicable in this situation. So Cruz is basically the next person there. I know he's not ranked, but that's only because of inactivity. It's not because of... I mean, if you were to rank Dominic Cruz, he's in the top five. Like I don't think I, I don't think you could rank Sandhagen ahead of him at this at this point in time. I just don't. So if Cruz had a number next to his name, it's probably two, maybe three. So he, he's right there. Just kind of looks optically bad that they've taken him out of the rankings. But regardless of that, and I know he's coming off of a loss. I know he hasn't fought in about three and a half years or whatever it is. But again, I, I think from a matchup standpoint, this is such an interesting, intriguing fight that it's so hard to almost wrap your head around it because I don't know if there's going to even be wrestling in this fight. Like I, I don't know if Cejudo's going to try to take Cruz down. Cruz is di- notoriously difficult to take down. I don't know if Cruz is going to try to take Cejudo down because you're going to try to out-wrestle uh, an Olympic gold medalist. Now, I watched Cruz versus Garbrandt, and what a performance by Garbrandt that was. Garbrandt looked absolutely incredible in that fight, and when it got to wrestling, Garbrandt was able to scramble and and uh, completely offset that element of Cruz's game. And if Garbrandt is able to do that, and Garbrandt's a good wrestler, and I'm not trying to take away from Garbrandt, but he's not an Olympic gold medalist like Cejudo. So I just think that this is going to take place on the feet, and Cruz has a good chance of winning this fight on the feet because if Cruz's cardio is able to hold up over five rounds, he's able to put the volume on him, he's able to utilize his footwork and not get hit, like you saw him do against TJ Dillashaw. I mean, he's got a good shot, but if if... The last fight against Garbrandt is any indication, you know, Garbrandt seemed to, to solve the puzzle. That being said, he was being coached by Justin Buckles, who had coached fighters for, what, like 20 rounds, maybe even more against Cruz in the past. And they just seemed to figure out the cheat code to, to beat this guy. This is going to be Cejudo's first time fighting Cruz. He's being coached by Eric Albarasi. And, like, I just don't know how much they can figure out from that Garbrandt fight that they'll be able to utilize because Garbrandt has crazy power for the bantamweight division. And I don't know if Suhudo has that kind of power. I mean, he he showed it against Dillashaw, but that was a, fl- a flyweight fight where Dillashaw was doing all kinds of crazy stuff to his body going into that fight. I, I find it hard to take anything away from that fight in terms of Suhudo's power. And then against Marais, Marais just ran out of gas against Suhudo. So Suhudo's striking has certainly improved a lot. But if you're getting into a striking match against Cruz, and you can't hit the guy, you're going to get frustrated. And that's one thing about Henry Cejudo that you have to give him a ton of credit for, is that this guy, look look back at what happened with him against Demetrius Johnson. Demetrius Johnson beats him in the first round and knocks him out. He comes back against Demetrius Johnson, puts on an all-time performance, doesn't get discouraged, goes five rounds with, with Demetrius Johnson and wins the fight on the scorecards against one of the all-time virtuosos in the sport. Then, against Marais, two fights later. He is able to weather a storm in the first round. In his corner, just something clicks with him, and he completely turns it around and flips it on Marlon Marais. Just uh, a fantastic performance by uh, Henry Cejudo. And I think that when you look at this particular matchup against Cruz... He's going to have to keep that kind of patience and, and not get flummoxed by Cruz because Cruz is not somebody who you faced. You know, there's not a fighter like Dominic Cruz that you faced before. And Cruz 
in terms of significant striking, has only been outlanded by Demetrius Johnson in his career, and that was back in 2011. And that was by three strikes. Cruz is going to outland you, in all likelihood, if you're Henry Cejudo. But Cejudo's got good speed. I mean, he's, you know, has fought at flyweight for most of his career. He's going he's to have the speed. He's going to have the wrestling advantage, for sure. And then on the feet, we got to just see, because, uh, you know, if you look at even Demetrius against Cejudo in the fight that... Uh, that Suhudo won by split decision. He got outlanded by 30 against Demetrius Johnson. I, I expect that there's going to be a gap in terms of strike, significant strikes landed in this fight. I think that you're going to see Dominic Cruz outland Henry Suhudo by, a, a, you know, at least 10 strikes if this fight goes five rounds, maybe more. And if that happens, Suhudo's going to have to land strikes that put Cruz down, that that knock him down, and that allow him to to pounce. Just like Garbrandt did. Now Garbrandt, I don't know what Garbrandt was thinking for a lot of that fight because he put Cruz down a couple times. Then he would just kind of pose, and he would he would try to get into Cruz's head. And whatever it was, it worked. But he probably could have finished that fight if he if he would have tried, especially with the first strike that put Cruz down. Cruz was flummoxed in that fight. I've never seen Cruz fight like that before. It looked like he just had an off night. But uh, if Cruz is on against Cejudo. And Cruz says he doesn't believe in cage rust, but this is the longest layoff uh, of his career, if I'm not mistaken. The time between the uh, Mizugaki fight and um, his fight, I guess, against uh, Demetrius Johnson was just under three years. He's been away for over three years in this case. So let's uh, let's see what uh, what happens in this particular fight because I, I'm honestly in, incredibly intrigued by the possibilities here. Alright, let's let's take a look at the rest of the card because there's a lot to go down and uh, that I want to really analyze here. The other fight that I really like on this card is the one right before the co-main event, Francis Ngannou versus Jarzinho Rosenstrike, which was supposed to headline a card in Columbus, Ohio for obvious reasons that fight had uh, that card got postponed. Now, speaking of significant strikes, in the last two years, in the last two years, Francis Ngannou has absorbed 26 significant strikes over the course of four fights. It's an average of uh, just over six per fight. So he's barely taken any damage. Now, Rosenstrike is coming off of that big win against Alistair Overeem that lasted almost five rounds. Now, prior to that fight, he in his three fights, he had... Uh, Absorbed 22 significant strikes. He also had two fights that lasted under 30 seconds. But that fight against Overeem told us a lot about Rosenstrike. Because Rosenstrike was able to last five rounds and his power hung in there for the entire fight. Now I remember I, I remember thinking about this fight the other day and I was like, how did Rosenstrike win that fight? And I remember Overeem winning the rounds. I was like, it must have been a robbery in the scorecards. And then I just looked at it now, and uh, I forgot that Rosenstrike knocked Overeem out with four seconds left. I, I just totally I totally spaced on it. Because I remember Overeem was like about to win that fight. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, Overeem's, you know, he's winning in the scorecards. But uh, Rosenstrike ended up knocking him out. I actually want to go and look and see what the scorecards look like for that particular fight, because I think that, uh, if I recall, Rosenstrike was going to win that fight anyways. Yeah, here, let's see. So scorecards were revealed here. And uh, I believe Overeem was up. Let's take a look. So Overeem, 
in that fight, he was up 49 or 39 to 37 on two scorecards and 40 to 36 on another. So Rosenzweig was on, on route to losing that fight. But a fight against Overeem and a fight against Ngannou are two very different things because Ngannou is just going to look to take your head off. Ngannou doesn't want the fight to last long. Whereas Overeem, his best luck in that, his best success in that fight would be to keep, draw the fight out, win te- with technical striking, win with wrestling, and that's what he was doing up until that point. But in this particular fight, I think both these guys are going to throw for the fences, and uh, it's going to be power versus power. And if you're going power versus power with uh, Francis Ngannou, that's not a great idea. I think Rosenstrike is a great fighter, but I mean, if you're if you're going to try to go strike for strike with this guy, you're going to lose. So, has Rosenstrike's technical improvements been enough that he can turn this into a bit of a technical fight with Ngannou and win with with technical striking? Because that that might be his best path to victory here, because. With his kickboxing background, Rosenstrike might be able to just out footwork, out land, out technique in Ganu. And he's going to have to just tread carefully. But Ganu's a nearly 3 to 1 favorite in this spot for a reason. But this is, this is one that I think is just. We're going we're gonna to learn a lot about both these fighters in this fight. Because uh, this, I think, is the best prospect that Ganu has fought. I mean, I know he's fought Curtis Blades twice, so that might be. An overstatement. But right now, I just think you got more of a striking-based fighter versus a wrestling-based fighter like Blades is. Blade, uh, although Blades' striking has come a long way. But Rosenstrike has that background in kickboxing that makes this a really intriguing fight for me. But I think the, the line is probably where it should be at around 3-1 to one for Nganu. Now, I mentioned Cruz Cejudo. Cruz is nearly a 2-100. to one underdog. That, that surprises me. That surprises me a lot. What else do we got on this card? Because uh, I want to I want to dissect some more of these fights. Stevens versus Cater, that's a good one. Cater uh, over a two to one favorite, and I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, Stevens has is a really great fighter, but I think that a lot of the way that Stevens has finished fights with those exciting knockouts makes his stock a little bit higher than maybe it should be. Now I might be wrong. I might be eating my words, but uh, just looking at uh, at him, he hasn't really had any. Prolonged success since that that three fight win streak. Yeah, that three fight win streak against Melendez, Duho Choi, and Josh Emmett. But since then, he's been o three and one. Yeah, that uh, no contest through the eye poke, but then ended up losing that fight to Yair Rodriguez when it got rescheduled. But those losses, I mean, losses to Aldo Zabit and Yair Rodriguez. You're talking about three top ten guys in the division, arguably top five. I mean, a lot of people are saying, "Oh, the Korean Zombie should uh, should challenge for the title next." But yeah, you beat him. <laughs> like, let's not. Yeah, you beat him. It hasn't lost since. So let's uh, let's not forget that. That's that's an important thing to to remember when you're when you're looking at that particular situation. Yeah, you might be ahead of the Korean Zombie in uh, in the pecking order because yeah, year. I mean, the last time Yair Rodriguez lost a fight was to Frankie Edgar back in 2017. Three years ago. Since then, he's uh, he's won both his fights. He beat Stevens and beat the Korean Zombie. So uh, you could argue that he's ahead of the Korean Zombie in the pecking order. Now, I know the Zombie was probably winning that fight, but he got that last-second knockout, one second left in a five-round fight with that up elbow, one of the greatest, probably the greatest finish in UFC history. would be hard-pressed to think of a better one. 
But uh, Stevens has just been on and off. He's kind of been a 500 fighter. And I think he's a great fighter. You know, don't get me wrong, but Cater was uh, putting it on to beat in that third round, which was his last loss. And uh, aside from that loss to Moicano, which was kind of a one-sided affair, he's been great. That knockout against Lamas in the first round, knockout against Fishgold in the first round, that win against Burgos, I just rewatched that. That was a really close fight, but uh, he nailed Burgos with that uppercut, man. Woo, that's about as devastating a shot as you'll see. Uh, and, of course, that that win over Feely in his debut, which uh, can't be understated. Feely's a very good fighter. So Stevens versus Caters, uh, that's a fight that I think has a lot of intrigue. And then you've got Hardy versus Jorgen DeCastro. And DeCastro said something interesting the other day about Greg Hardy. He said, I'm I'm happy to be getting Greg Hardy now because I think in a year and a half, Greg Hardy's going to be way better. He's going to be way better than I am. Which just goes to show that uh, he's not underestimating Hardy. And he, he knows that Hardy's athletic background, that with, with that background, he's just going to get better and better. But this is a great way to open up the main card, Hardy versus Jorgen DeCastro. We're going to see where both these guys are at. DeCastro has looked great. Had that big win on the Contender Series and then uh, beating Justin Taffa in his UFC debut. Whereas Hardy, uh, you know, he lost to Volkov in his most recent fight. It was a main event. Uh, I think it was, a, oh, sorry, it was a co-main event, three-round fight. Then he uh, had a unanimous win over... Ben Sassoli, which was overturned because he used an inhaler in between rounds. He's had a really confused... I mean, his career in MMA has been controversial. Had that loss to Alan Crowder with that, that illegal knee. Crowder was a downed opponent. That that counted as a loss. Had that win over Smolyakov uh, and Juan Adams, both first-round wins, both very legitimate wins. But uh, Juan Adams lost two in a row after that. Smolyakov has not been seen since and was popped by USADA. So kind of a weird career arc for uh, for Greg Hardy. But uh, Jorgen DeCastro is a really legit opponent, and it's probably the level where Greg Hardy should be fighting right now. I mean, he took that leap a little bit too soon against uh, Volkov, and it showed. Volkov was just able to out-technique him over the, over the course of three rounds. And then the most recently added fight to this card, and I mean, when I say the most recently added, I mean the most recently added matchup because a lot of these other fights, uh, the matchups had been scheduled prior. But Cowboy Cerrone versus Anthony Pettis, a WEC throwback. And I guess technically a UFC throwback because that's when they, they met. But uh, two of the best lightweights in WEC history. Locking up in the welterweight division. And uh, this should be interesting because people kind of write off Cerrone at this stage in the game. Cerrone has lost three in a row. But look at who he's lost them to. Gaethje, Ferguson, and Conor McGregor. Three top three Lightweights outside of the champion in the division. Basically, the three best guys not, not named Khabib Nurmagomedov in, in the lightweight division. And before that, in the same year, uh, at least calendar year, I think, a win over Alexander Hernandez and a win over Ally Akinta. So, I mean, Cerrone still has what it takes to be at the top of the game. But he just isn't able to get over that hump. And Pettis, you can say the same thing for. I mean, Pettis had that great win over Wonderboy, so I really don't want to take away from that. But looking at looking at Pettis' resume over the last couple of years, he just he was the champion, but since then he hasn't been able to get over that hump. So he lost to uh, Dos Anjos, and since then lost to Eddie Alvarez, split decision, close fight. Lost to Edson Barboza, unanimous decision. Then he moves down to featherweight, beats Charles Oliveira, and look at how good Charles Oliveira has been since then. 
But then he lost to Max Holloway. Uh, failed to make weight for featherweight. Weighed in at 148. And then uh, lost that opportunity. Since then, wins over Jim Miller, Michael Chiesa, and Stephen Thompson. So those are those are good good fighters. I mean, Chiesa is no longer at lightweight. Uh, that was Chiesa missed weight and then moved to welterweight subsequently. But Chiesa is a hell of a fighter. So I mean, that you can't take that win away from him for sure. And Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is an excellent fighter. He's the first guy to ever put away Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Thompson says he's never even been knocked out in practice. He's the first guy to knock him out. So. Um, and then a, a loss to an uh, Diaz, lost to uh, Carlos Diego Pejeja. So his career has been really up and down. He hasn't had a win streak since 2014 when uh, he had won five in a row starting in 2011 till 2015. So basically was undefeated for over five years, or almost five years, rather. Or is it almost four years? Almost four years undefeated. Lost to Dos Anjos. Alvarez and Edson Barboza, three-fight losing streak after dropping the title. And since then, it's just been on and off. He hasn't he hasn't been able to get any momentum, any traction. And this is a fight where I think he can get some of that traction back. I think he should stay at welterweight. I don't I don't see why he's cutting weight to fight a guy like Carlos Diego Fejeja at lightweight. I just don't see the upside there. So I'm glad that he's back at welterweight. And I think this is where he should be. Pettis is still pretty young, too. Pettis is 33 years old now. Whereas Cerrone's a bit on the older side. But this is going to tell us a lot about both of these guys. Whoever wins this fight, we're going to learn a lot about both of them in this spot. Uh, Pettis beat Cerrone the first time. We'll see what happens this time. Fabricio Verdum making his long-awaited return to the cage. The former heavyweight champion was on a a pretty long-term USADA suspension. The last time that he fought was back in uh, March of 2018, so it's been two-plus years since he's been in the cage, and he's taking on long-time, long-time veteran Alexei Olenek, two of the best submission artists to ever do it at heavyweight, up there with uh, Nogira in terms of the, the best heavyweight submission artists. And we have Olenek coming off of a win against Maurice Green, but that came uh, after two first-round knockouts to Overeem and Harris. This is a pretty dangerous fight for uh, Olenek. I think that uh, Olenek is just not a very good... Like, uh, Verdum's got him beat pretty much in every category. It's not a great matchup for Alexei Olenek. And, uh, a pretty uh, favorable matchup for Verdum to come back. But we'll, we'll see what Verdum still has left in the, in the tank for this particular fight. And then the rest of the card, you got Esparza versus Watterson. Uriah Hall versus Jacare Souza. That's the first fight on the televised prelims. Hall versus Souza. That just shows you how stacked this card is. And then in the uh, fight pass prelims in Canada on ESPN Plus in the States, Vicente Luque versus Nico Price, Bryce Mitchell versus Charles Rosa, and Ryan Spann versus Sam Alvey. Great, great, great fights. Really looking forward to that. All right, now with that, let's get to our interview with uh, Macy Chasson. It was nice speaking with Macy. She's a, a a very talented fighter, young fighter in the women's bantamweight division. And she joins us now on the TSN MMA show. I'm now joined by Macy Chasson, who's uh, in Dallas during the coronavirus uh, scare right now. Are you, are you home by yourself? I know you have a dog with you. Uh, I have my dog with me. She's been with me since day one. Uh, but, you know, fortunately... Um, 
I have my partner right now, so I'm not completely alone. I can't imagine like being single during this whole pandemic situation. I'd be going insane right now. Yeah, it's, it's obviously good to have uh, a company. I've got my three kids, my wife, so I'm I've got I'm more than covered in that department. Lots lots to do. Are, from what I heard, like friends with kids, I, I'm not sure. I feel like you might be lying. I mean, is it really that great having your three kids at home right now? <laughs> it's not bad, you know. I'm, I'm having them home anyways. Usually, you know, I get home from work and they're all home anyways. So uh, you said uh, that with a little bit of despair. You're like, it's not that bad. No, it's fun. It's but you know, I get whisper. to I get yeah. to connect with them, uh, which is which is good. So I can't complain about that. Um, so, That's good. So what's the situation with your training? I mean, I, I know that the gym, uh, Fortis MMA, is closed right now, but are you able to right. go occasionally for, for one-on-one lessons or anything along those lines? No. Uh, well, my striking coach, he's got two kids. They're really young. One of them's not even a year old yet. So just the risk factor of them possibly getting exposed to something is just far too high, you know, especially them being that young. So I haven't been able to work with my striking coach. Um, I haven't been to Fortis. Fortis is shut down, you know. I mean, you're not allowed in a gym. And I think, honestly, the only way if I were able to get into a gym with a partner would be if we both quarantined at the gym, which, is, which I, from my understanding, I know that a few people have done that uh, because they weren't sure if they were fighting on one of the UFC cards or not. But as of right now, I've just kind of been making up my own workouts. Um, as soon as this whole, like, thing went down I went to the store and I bought a barbell I bought some plates so the only thing that I've really been able to keep up and control is kind of like you know my conditioning and my strength training um I have been teaching my partner a little bit of jujitsu she's pretty athletic um but you know that's I always tell her I'm like the most dangerous people to train with are like the slightly trained people that are like extremely strong and spastic so I'm trying real hard to just not get hurt right now. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, you'll know who it is that's going to hurt you, though. You've got one, one training partner uh, at the moment. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But, you know, there's some things that she can do for me. It's just it's not the same. You know, it, it takes a skill to be able to hold mitts for a professional. It, it's, it's a certain skill set, you know. So it, I'm only able to really control the controllables, and I think that's how it is for everyone right now. Now, a lot of people are saying, and it surprises me uh, when I ask, you know, if, if the UFC offered you a fight right now, would you take it um, if it was in a month's time? And a lot of them are like, yeah, oh, yeah, anytime, any place. But I feel like it would be under really suboptimal um, conditions. Right. What camp are you in? If I were to say, you know, a month from now, the UFC wants you to go to Vegas and fight at the Apex, what's your answer? I would say yes, absolutely. Um, I was kind of for – my coach and I were ready for a call as soon as uh, we found out that Amanda – uh, dropped out of the fight. I was like, look, I'll fight at 145 in two weeks. I'll do it. Um, you know, I mean, none of us have really had an actual, you know, legitimate camp. And <clears throat> I mean, it's not like my skill sets were going to get any better over the form of like four weeks. You know, I haven't hit mitts in four weeks, but I'm able to shadow box. I'm able to strength train. I'm able to control my diet, you know? So, if I can make 45, 145 in two weeks, I'd absolutely do it. And if they called me and say, hey, in a month, month and a half, we might have a fight for you at 135, I'm down for that as well. So I'm kind of in a place to where I can move up or you know, continue to fight at 35 in the, under the circumstances. 
Yeah, speaking of which, uh, with Amanda, she pulled out of the uh, May 9th fight because of, of, I guess, what I had mentioned before, that the yeah. training situation is not optimal. I think for champions in specific, it's something that they really need to look carefully at because of how much comes with being a champion financially. Right. Oh, absolutely. It's expensive. I mean, people don't understand how expensive uh, actual fight camps are and... Um, you know, it's it's not like it's not like the NFL where you paid a contract over a certain amount of time and everything is kind of given to you. You have to pay for everything. You have to pay for training partners. You have to pay your coaches. You know, there's a lot that goes into a fight camp. Yeah, looking at your season of The Ultimate Fighter, everybody was supposed to be fighting at 145, and it seems everybody from the show, I guess with the exception of Leah Letson, who recently declared herself to be a featherweight, uh, is, is moving down to bantamweight, yourself included. Um, do you see a future for yourself at featherweight? I mean, you'd be a top three featherweight likely as, as soon as you made the jump. Well, Larissa Pacheco fights for PFL now, and she was in that uh, tournament at 155. Um, so she actually moved up to like a weight class. I'm, I'm not sure if she actually fought at 135 before the show, but she's a 155 or now. Uh, you know, and... The reason that I didn't want to fight at 145 right when I started in the UFC was because I wanted to give myself a chance at 135, you know, and moving back up to 45, I would also have to get a little bit bigger because I'm kind of in between, which is good, right? It's good to be kind of in that at that weight in between where you can move up and fight or you can move down. Uh, but there's, you know, if I'm going to do 135, I'm going to do it right. If I'm going to do 145, I'm going to do it right. So I would like to add a little bit more mass uh, to my body before moving to 145. But it's, you know, I'm kind of at that point right now to where I wouldn't mind fighting at 145 or 135. You made an interesting statement the other day. Tony Ferguson decided arbitrarily to make 155 pounds. Um, and you, yeah. you mentioned that because he dropped 24 pounds, had a female made a similar cut in terms of percentage that they'd get all kinds of uh, flack from whether it's media fans, I don't know. Uh, give me your rationale of why you think there's a double standard there. And look, like just to, just to put things in a little bit of perspective, I mean, I'm not shaming Tony Ferguson at all. I mean, I think it's fine. If you want to make your weight and drop however many pounds and however many days, that's your business. If that's something that you do all the time, do it, right? If something went wrong and that's what you have to do, then you have to do it. Um, if it's a choice, it's a choice, you know, and I don't I'm not shaming someone for doing that. But all I'm trying to, like, bring to light is, is that, uh, you know, I think women get shamed for such things, you know, especially being in certain weight classes. You have people it's usually men, you know, and uh, and. It's not always a one side thing. It can be both routes, you know, because I think women these days in MMA or boxing or any sort of uh, combat sport feel like they have to sell themselves in order to get attention um, instead of trying to get attention the right way. You know, like I'd rather have 10,000 followers that actually follow me because they like the way I fight than because me posting a bathing suit picture, you know. Um, and I feel like that's what most of these women have to do in order to get attention. And it really sucks. I hate it. I hate, I hate that, you know, the sport is kind of coming to that. But with that being said, you know, um, it's just a lot of body shaming, you know, with men. And, uh, I've heard of some crazy ass weight cuts from dudes in a, in a matter of days, you know, and I've done a crazy weight cut in a matter of days just because I wasn't, Maybe my nutrition wasn't on point. Something went wrong. Um, there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong with women during a weight cut. 
And uh, I just think that, I mean, even when I've made 136, you know, and I didn't have the easiest time making 136, but I had a lot of people that were commenting like, oh, well, you should move up a weight class or you should do this, you should do that. I just feel like a lot of people have a lot of things to say about women, you know, especially if they come in a pound over, you know, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a sex thing. It should be more of, you know, it's a fighter thing, you know, and I just think that women get such a bad rap. They, it is, you know, I don't know if I'm the only one, I'm definitely not the only one that thinks that. I, I feel like maybe you have an input or two about that as well. Well, I go the other way. I think that people should be looking at women differently than men because the biology is different and it's actually harder for women to cut right. weight because of, like you mentioned, right. things can go wrong from a biological standpoint. Something that men don't have to deal right. with, obviously, is, is their cycle on a monthly basis. So people should actually right. be more understanding if, if women miss weight because it's almost impossible to plan for something that could you know, spring up at any time and cause a complication that men wouldn't ordinarily face. For sure. You know, and it's not, I'm not trying to say that, you know, they shouldn't have an opinion. You know, I think everyone's entitled to an opinion and I understand that. I just feel like people have more to say when it's a female that misses weight or it's a female that's cutting a lot of weight, you know, um, rather than, you know, in comparison to men. And, uh, you know, and, and most of the comments that I saw was like, oh, he's just insane, blah, blah, blah. And I know a lot of women that cut a lot of weight and people would be like, oh, my God, like she should move up a weight class. What is she doing? You know, it's just it's just the tone in the comments. It just doesn't make sense to me. But then again, that's when I go. We rewind back to women having a bad rap and, you know, men being more fixated on what the woman looks like than the way she performs, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that like you mentioned, is obviously something that uh, has sprung up as, as- I guess, especially in recent years, it seems like it's becoming more yeah. and more prevalent uh, in the sport. And I, I don't know what can be done to correct that or if, if, if even the athletes want it to be corrected. I'm sure that some do yeah. and some don't. Like you mentioned, your social media following uh, is something that you'd like to see based on your performances rather than outside factors. Right. right. And I understand, like, I, I'm all for for people, you know, putting out pictures of, like, what kind of person they are, who they are. But if every single photo that you're posting is you in a lingerie shot – or like you with your shirt off, like in, you know, underwear, or whatever. I mean, I understand like we fight in sports bras, like that's that's a part of what we do. But it just seems like most of these women are just trying so hard, you know. Um, and it's just, but I, but then again, I feel like that's what they feel like they have to do in order to get noticed. And it's it's horrible. It sucks. Yeah. So, do you think there's anything that can be done, be done to change that at all, or do you, is there anything that you would say to somebody who feels like they need to do that in order to get that kind of attention? I don't know. I just think like us as women, us as like the female race, like we need to do a little bit better at being a, a better role model to not just like children and younger girls, but to just people in general. You know, I mean, if you want men to respect you or if you want society to respect you, you need to be a little bit more respectful. And I think it's okay every now and then to get a little racy and like, post a lingerie shot but if that's what your whole entire career is based off of then I don't understand I don't understand what you're doing you know it just make it just really uh degrades the sport it really does and you don't see a lot of Olympians like especially female female athletes track stars um basketball you don't see them doing stuff like that you know and it really just it really just degrades the sport 
I believe. Well, the sports created an interesting dynamic because you can't really think of any other professional sports, uh, at least at the level that the UFC is or mixed martial arts is, where you know you have a, a female main event and then you have males in the co-main event, where women will right. take center stage and, and be the featured um, uh, you know part of the of the event. So. I, th right. I think that that creates an interesting dynamic because it's nothing that people are really used to. You know, you're, you're used to men's tennis and right. women's tennis, men's golf, women's golf, men's basketball, right. women's basketball, instead of everything being on the same platform. Oh, for sure, 100%. Yeah, and, you know, we're we're finally singled out, you know, as uh, as women, as strong women to, you know, really portray what we should be like in sports. And then you're taking – and it's not everyone. I'm not going to sit here and say it's every single female, but it's most of the ones that – you know, I guess if I walked up to a guy and I said, name three female UFC fighters, they'd probably say Paige Van Zandt, you know. Um, they would say Amanda Nunes. And then probably another person that comes to mind that, you know, oh, they think's hot. So, which is good. I mean, you should have, there needs to have that, you know, attractive factor to someone that you enjoy watching. But if that's the only thing that the sport is solely based off of, like that people want to go and see, it's just... You know, I just think it's a really bad place to be for the sport. But like I said, it's not everyone. It's just I just feel like it's becoming more and more prevalent. I'm curious about your last two fights and what you've learned from those. Obviously, the fight with Lena Landsberg didn't go your way. You were undefeated before that. And then your most recent fight, you went yeah. to distance. And, and you had a dominant performance. But it was the longest that you'd mm -hmm. been in the cage for um, outside of, right. you know, in a win of yours. Um, and the output was a lot yeah. higher. Um, so walk me through what you've learned from both of those situations. Man, I'm <laughs> the Lena Landsberg fight is one of those fights that's like gonna haunt me for the rest of my life. Um, and it's so weird because like I train, and I'm not just like you can you can ask any UFC athlete, female athlete, like oh like I'm sure you train hard. Like they'll say they train hard, right? And I like I train so hard. I mean, I probably train anywhere from six to eight hours a day with little to none off days, which is terrible. I don't recommend that. You should always have a rest day, you know? And, uh, and man, like the way I look at it is that I always like, it's so weird. Like it's a self-inflicting type thing. Like I have to torture myself in order to, in order to feel like I'm like, I'm, uh, training the right way. Like I put myself through the worst training sessions, just rigorous, just nonstop, just you know, which is awful for your body. Like your body is, your body can do a lot of things, but your body needs time to rest. And, uh, I put myself through an insane camp and even my coach, you know, my head coach safe was like, Macy, I need you to take a day off. Macy, I need you to tone it down because literally every day I was redlining for that camp, you know, because I, Lena was a big fight for me, you know, and she was a ranked opponent. She had been in the UFC for a long time. So I wanted to make sure that, when I fought her, I was going to be 150%. Well, I literally just drove myself into the ground day in, day out for that fight. I didn't, I didn't allow myself to take the required days off, you know, uh, of rest. And I also lost all of my stuff in that crane crash with my apartment like just a few months before. So I was kind of like in a weird place. And this isn't me trying to make excuses. This is just kind of me trying to explain where my head was at for that fight because I'm such a mental, like, yeah, like I have great attributes as far as fighting, but a lot of it comes from like my mentality. I feel like I've gotten this far because I'm such a strongly mentally 
uh, sound person. Um, and by the time I got to that fight, when I got in the cage, I was just kind of like, oh my God, like I am so like burnt out, you know, like I, I didn't have that adrenaline factor. I was just like, I'm just ready to do this and get it over with. It was insane. So I guess you did learn something from that fight that, you, you know, that's probably helped you. The fact that it drives you in every night is probably yeah. going to be something that helps you down the road. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and just about what I was saying about the Lurk fight, you know, and she, she's a great fighter. She's a grinder and she knows how to win, you know, and, um, I mean, I should have easily won that fight and I know I can beat her. That that's, there's no doubt about that. And it was just a matter of the fact that I just didn't show up that night. It just was not myself, you know, and usually I get really hyped up in the back and I'm like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do this. You know, I've been tortured for the last, like, whatever months of training, you know, and I was just like really calm, which is weird. Like I'm usually not like that chill. So I knew, I just knew like something was wrong, you know, right before I walked out. But mentality aside, the technicality of it was that I just didn't, I didn't chain wrestle enough. I didn't go back out in the open and strike. I mean, she did not want to stand up with me. You know, it, it became a wrestling match and it was just, I just was not in the right headspace, you know, and so the technical aspect of it was just all messed up, just all wrong. And, and, uh, you know, the, I think I needed that in order to really just reassess myself and what I need to work on and what could happen in there. And, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy. I'm not happy that I lost, but I'm happy with the fact that I could learn something from a loss, you know? And I think that's what most athletes can go ahead and say about themselves when uh when they don't show up and when they do they don't get that win you know um and so i think it helped me prepare a lot better for my next fight um i mean my cardio was on point i mean i was waking up every day for for my last camp i was waking up every day at a resting heart rate of, of 34 i mean i was in the middle of a marathon training and i was you know i took adequate days off like i should have for my fight against lena but uh, I was in really great shape uh, from my last fight when we had that short notice opponent change. So what was the big change? You're, you're going home with Coach Safe and you're flying back. You've, you've, uh, you've dropped your first fight. What's the advice he gives you and what, what do you take from that that helped change you and get you back on track? He, he just told me, he's like, you know, you came into the UFC at 2-0. and He's like, you're like such a baby in the UFC, he's, he said, basically like you're growing up as a pro, like fighting the best people in the world, you know? Um, and he's like, you need to take a step back and just kind of give yourself a pat on the back at, you know, what you've accomplished so far, what you've done, you know, just because, you know, you had this loss doesn't mean that you're a shitty fighter. It just means that you, there was something that went wrong technically, you know, and it happens, you know, even the best in the world lose. Maybe this isn't the one that you wanted to lose, right? I'd rather lose in a title fight, but nothing's perfect. And I think that's what makes everyone who they are. And, uh, you know, it, I really beat myself up over it. Like right after my fight, I was like, I want another fight right now. I was like, we need to get me back in there. I want to fight someone right now. I need to, I need to condemn myself. Yeah, well, you were able to get it back. You were able to win your last fight. It was a short notice opponent. What did you know about Shanna before you fought her? Did you did you know anything about her? Uh, not really. Um, we went and watched a few fights. Uh, 
right when we got the call. And, um, you know, I mean, she, she's pretty, she has really good Taekwondo and she honestly for, and I thought she wasn't, she hadn't been in a camp. So I didn't think that she was going to be in that good of a sh- good of shape, but actually she was in a camp because she was supposed to fight for Invicta the week before. And she ended up getting sick. I think she had like the flu or something like that. Well, now that we look back, it could have been Corona. But um, no, I think she had the flu. And so she ended up getting pulled from the card. So she actually was in a full camp uh, whenever she got the call from the UFC for a short notice replacement. Um, So we didn't really know too much about her. We just knew that, you know, seven and two, she's fought in Invicta a few times against some uh, legit opponent opponents. Uh, she fought at 135 and 125, but she was more of a 125er. Um, so she didn't really have to cut much weight, I don't think, um, for the short notice fight against me. Imagine getting the flu, and then the next week you're in the UFC because you couldn't fight in your last fight. That seems seems kind of strange. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah, it really does seem strange. Um, but you know what? Kudos to her. She really was sick and she jumped in last minute. You know, it's a win-win situation for her. You know, you get a UFC contract, you just go and fight. So there's nothing she really could have lost. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize that the elevation was going to have such an impact just because my conditioning was so good. And, uh, it was insane. Like whenever I was on like a top position on her on the ground, which is like usually where I like to finish most of my opponents, uh, it literally felt like somebody was like holding my arm back every time I would try to punch. It was insane how much uh, how much elevation can can affect your training. What was that? That was the Rio Rancho card. Yeah, it was like sixty five hundred elevation, and Dallas is like three hundred. Yeah, I think Rio Rancho is like the second highest point in in North America in terms of elevation, higher than okay. Denver, higher than like almost anywhere else. <laughs> Yeah, my one of my strength coaches was asking me, he's like, how do you think that's going to affect you? I was like, I don't think it will. <laughs> well, but, now, uh, now you know, we whatever, know. <laughs> we got the job done. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that, that's an interesting circumstance. And I guess the guys that train in New Mexico under Greg Jackson can uh, can relate. Uh, well, thanks for this, Macy. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing your next fight. I don't know how the UFC schedule is going to shake out. We're going to probably know a little bit more in about a month's time. Yeah. But uh, hopefully you're able to turn it around quickly, and hopefully your your teammate Uriah uh, has some success when he uh, he steps in there on May 9th. Yeah, I have a feeling that as soon as all this stuff's lifted, that they're going to be cranking out fights like every week. So we're going to be we're going to be pretty active once this whole thing is uh, over with. But thank you so much, Aaron. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day since you have a lot going on right now. I know it's busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're all we're all just. Uh, Tons of plans. I was going to go to the mall. I was going to uh, hang out with some friends, go to the bar. But you know what? For you, Macy, I decided to stay home. <laughs> awesome. That was the right decision. <laughs> All right. I'm pleased to be joined by Shane Burgos and Lyman Good. You guys are uh, at the gym. Lyman just got there apparently a one-hour drive. And you do this, what, almost every day or every day? Uh, every other day. And, um, you know, I'm trying my best just to get out here as much as I can throughout the week, especially during the training camps. But in general, about three times out of a week, maybe four sometimes, if I can get it in. 
Cool. Well, uh, you guys have been training together for some time at Tiger Shulman Gym. Uh, Lyman, obviously a, a bit of a scare recently for you. Uh, you were the first UFC fighter to come out and say that they've been tested positive for, uh, for COVID-19. You've since recovered. Uh, what was that like for you, I guess, to be at home for those weeks, knowing that you know, there might have been others that you put in jeopardy that, that you were able to touch base with, thankfully, and you caught it early? Uh, the first, my first means of concern was just to minimize any spreading. So as soon as I got the symptoms, I let everybody know and I went to go get tested because my priority was just to make sure that I wasn't going to spread this thing to anybody else, especially my, my coaches, um, my teammates, and anybody that I was in contact with. There weren't that many people that I had around me. It was the same, uh, the same group. So and just to minimize any spreading or anything, as soon as I found out, I just stayed home, let everybody know, and I went and get tested. So Shane, when he tells you the, this news, what's your instant reaction? I was just like, oh shit. I was like, no way. I was like, like we kept it so like small. We, we really haven't been training with a, a big group at all. We, he had that fight with uh, Bilal on April 18th that was coming up. So what we were doing, we had like a small group of guys that were just training specifically for him. So uh, it was the same guys. We just kept circulating the same guys. And when he got it, we were like, oh shit, we probably all got it too. But none of us got it. I didn't get tested, but one of my teammates got tested for the antibodies. One of the other guys we were working with, and he didn't have the antibodies, so that means that we didn't get it, and I haven't had any symptoms from it. So I, I assumed that I would have probably had it already, but I haven't. One of your coaches ended up getting it as well. Yes. Yeah, and he's he's since recovered. I think you mentioned the Ariel Hawani as well. Um, so, so when when you find this out, obviously, do do you know Lyman where you got this or how you contracted it? Was it could it have been community or do you have any idea? I couldn't tell you. You know. Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic where this thing spreads so fast and so easily that it's hard to really, you know, figure out how it's uh, it's spreading around. But as far as how I got it, I couldn't couldn't really tell you. I tried to keep the same group of people that I was in, in uh, contact with constant. It wasn't anybody new. But man, this thing is it's just hard to contain, you know, and know exactly. You yourself could do everything right, but it's hard to you know, to know the people that you are around who they may have been in touch with, yeah. you know, and where they've been. And, you know, there's only so much control you can have over the, your environment and people that you're around. Because I'm in Toronto and we, we have uh, obviously some cases here, but I don't know anybody in particular aside from one individual that has tested positive for COVID-19. Obviously in New Jersey and New York, it's a lot worse. How many people do you know that have contracted the coronavirus uh, at some point? I mean, he, I know him, I know his girlfriend, I know my coach, I know um, a bunch of family, friends, like not direct family members, but a lot of family friends have gotten it. So uh, I can't even give you a number, honestly. It's been a decent amount for me. I, for him, it's probably even more. Yeah, I, I run a school, a martial arts gym in, uh, in the city. And one of my students, unfortunately, passed away from it. And I had a lot of students reaching out to me and letting me know that either somebody that, that they know was sick with it or had passed away from it. So it's quite a few, few people that I'm aware of. That's terrible. So a student, how old was the student? He was young. He was 27, 28. Yeah, it's pretty unbelievable because there was a lot of, I guess, misinformation early that it can only affect the elderly in terms of, uh, you know, whether or not people could die from it. And uh, we've since learned uh, that that's not the case. Obviously, um, you know, in, in MMA, there was a photographer for the New York Post, Anthony Causey, who was at a lot of these events and also passed away from it. So and he was he was a younger guy with with young children. So it's it's really scary to hear that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's why we've been, like I said, we've been doing the same. Nobody new has been coming in. We kept it the same. If you're sick, you stay home. You don't come back until you feel better. Um, 
or at all. We haven't had anyone that's gotten sick really besides Lyman, but uh, he went and got tested before he even came back. So uh, he didn't even feel comfortable coming back unless he got a, a positive test that, or a negative test that he was 100% clear. Yeah, I wanted to kind of clarify a little bit of the, you know, the fear that was going on, you know, which is much understood why, you know, there's fear. But I also, again, just want to make sure my conscience was clear and uh, to make sure nobody would get it. So as soon as I felt good, I gave myself some time to really recover. And then uh, I went to go get tested again because I wanted it, you know, in writing that I was 100% fine, that I was negative, and that it wasn't in my body at all. You know, I wouldn't feel right otherwise. I mean, uh, come out here to train with the guys if I, unless I got that first. Yeah, from hearing your story, it seems like you took a really responsible approach. You went and got tested just because you had found some sort of uh, um, symptoms, and uh, then you went and got tested afterwards. And you've also since been working with the Red Cross to try to uh, get donate some blood for the antibodies. And I saw in India yesterday they uh, revealed that there was a, a successful test um, where I, I believe a success, successful case of recovery with uh, plasma transfer. So it looks like they're working on some new ways of combating this. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited, you know, to, to hear that news because there's a lot of uncertainty. Like we were saying before, you know, there's so much misinformation out there and uh, there's no certainty over, over what works, what doesn't, you know, um, ways to get around it. You know, all we can do is just try. So I figured since I beat this thing, you know, it doesn't hurt. It, it costs me nothing, you know, to be able to just give blood. All it is is the cost of blood. I don't care. I'll give blood. My blood will regenerate. But if I can do that in the hopes of helping somebody out there, then I figure why not, you know, turn this negative into a positive as much as I could. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you guys joining me. And Shane, I know that you uh, were a free agent and uh, I guess recently in the last month or so re-signed with the UFC on a, on a four-fight deal. Um, tell me about that process because it was a bit of a long process for you. Yeah, it was a long process to say the least. Uh, I got a new management team since then, and uh, we've been working. And we talked to some other promotions, but at the end of the day, we decided to go with UFC for uh, number one reasons. It's the best promotion in the world, obviously. But number two, number two reasons, uh, USADA was a big a big um, motivating factor for me signing. I want to complete, compete in a clean sport, and um, I feel like USADA has. I mean, it's not perfect at all, and there's still guys that are getting away with cheating. But I feel like UFC will have the guys that are the least amount of cheaters in the in, in the in the organization. What, uh, what made you decide to, to switch um, management, to, to go over to front, uh, front row, or, uh, sorry, first row management uh, with Malky and Abe Kawa? I guess both of you guys signed on with them. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, there's a couple of different reasons, some, some personal, but um main reason is just that, that I feel like they're the best, and that's, that I wanted to be with the best, and, that, and the deal I got from them, this new UFC deal, I'm more than happy with. We went out to, uh, to Florida to go meet them in person. You know, they were very accommodating, and... I think we pretty much base it off of how we felt. You know, we're, we're very keen on genuine connections and knowing that whoever we're dealing with are people who are going to give 100% since we're giving 100% of our body and our soul into, you know, into the sport. Yeah. So we wanted somebody who's going to give 100% as well, nothing less, and basically in the fifth match. You know, they were very cool people, very family-oriented. Yep. I mean, traveling to Miami certainly doesn't hurt either. I mean, when you're, when you're in the middle of winter uh, in New York, they, they had a bit of a leg up on you guys in that situation. Yeah, <laughs> Miami's beautiful, especially in January. <laughs> so that's cool. I'm glad that you're back, Shane. And I mean, there are so many good matchups in the featherweight division for you right now. The division is just so stacked. And um, after watching your last fight, I mean, you can't help but be really excited about seeing your future in the uh, in the UFC. No, I can't wait to be back, man. I'm working on something now. Um, we're looking looking at some time in June. Uh, no opponent yet, but um, I want to be back ready, man. I've been training for these like. like he had that training camp, and I was basically put myself in training camp too. So I've been in training camp since like March, wait, waiting for a fight.
Shane, Shane, somebody is just, he's always training, man. I, I, this doesn't come from him. It's me, you know, telling, telling you guys. This guy's always just ready for action, always ready to, uh, you know, to hop on a fight at any given point because he's always putting in the time, even when there's no fight going on. You know, so I'm excited to see him go out there. Thank you, bro. Yeah, one of my favorite backstage moments is right before uh, you went out to fight um, Cub Swanson. You, you looked at me and gave me the devil horns. Usually people are just so in their element, but you were able to just, uh, you know, take that one moment to show me that it was game time. Yeah, man, that was, that was almost a year ago, exactly. I got that, that memory just popped up. It's fight week a year ago. I, got, I need to be back, man. I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. It's been too long. I got, I got a family. I got, I got bills to pay. This whole COVID shit going on, I haven't really been making money, so I, I need to get back in there. And uh, Lyman, you were supposed to fight uh, Bilal Muhammad, UFC 249. Uh, obviously, with your situation and, of course, with the date getting moved, uh, that might be in flux right now. Also, Bilal is observing Ramadan right now, although he has fought during Ramadan in the past. Is there any clarification on your situation right now? Uh, no, I'm pretty set to go. We're in the middle of uh, pretty much talking with the UFC. My management, Malky Laid, we're reaching out to the UFC to uh, discuss something coming up pretty soon. I'm hoping maybe Bilal would take up that fight. But at the end of the day, it's whoever. You know, I'm ready to fight. Point being is I'm healed. I'm 100% recovered. And I'm ready to go. Ready to get back out there. I've explained to a lot of people, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of heat on the UFC for wanting to be the first ones back and, and for putting on an event. But the UFC is kind of uniquely positioned to do these events. Obviously, you know, if you look at basketball, hockey, baseball, these are people that are on the same team. They're with each other day in and day out. They're practicing. They're all healthy so they could easily be asymptomatic. Uh, whereas the UFC, people come in for fight week. You, you, um, you know, you, you obviously you compete and then you go home. And then you can, of course, self-isolate for 14 days, which I, I think is probably what everybody's going to do after that for the, the health and safety of their families. But then you're not at another event for three months. Do you think that that's why the UFC is, is in a good place to come back uh, earlier than a lot of other sports? I think so. And a big thing for that is uh, MMA isn't a team sport, which I think is huge. That, I mean, it's a team sport as in we have to get ready with the team, but actually being in the cage it's you a referee and a, and a, and another fighter and then you get the three judges on the outside you, i feel like it's uh probably the, the easiest sport to control if you think about that because you don't have these 10 t- 10 person teams or whatever it is for these other sports so a little people involved it's easy to minimize you know the uh the amount of people that we, we get in contact with and stuff and like shane said i think it's probably one of the easier sports if anything to regulate and to you know keep on going during this you know the, the covid and Lyman, as someone who's lined up for four hours in a drive-in, drive basically, or a drive-through to get tested in New Jersey, uh, you obviously know that the testing is, is not the easiest thing. If, if you could offer some sort of advice to the UFC on, on how they could do this in the safest possible manner, uh, what kind of advice would you give them or what would you like to see them do? Um, as far as advice, I mean, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to you know, tell people what to do or what not to do. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of fear out there and more... More importantly, there's a lot of information out there that is very confusing, conflicting, and people don't really know what to do. And I think that's part of the reason why there's so much fear going on and, you know, being spread throughout the media and society is because misinformation. You do this, you get sick. If you stay home, you get sick. You know, it's like there's no other ways around it. I would say, you know, first and foremost is to start with the mind. Tell yourselves, like, we all got to kind of get away from this whole fear mongering. And this is coming from someone who got it, you know, and to let everybody know, you know, I'm trying to turn this whole situation to a positive to let everyone know that it's okay. You know, I'm one of the people who beat it, but I'm amongst, I, I am amongst thousands of others that did also. You know, there is no secret remedy. There's nothing I did. It's just, to me, it felt like a really bad flu. You know, it's unfortunate that there are people 
that are having a harder time with it. But at the end of the day, you know, as far as advice, just follow, you know, simple procedures, you know, minimize contact with people as much as you, you know, as you're able to. But other, like, you know, cleaning your hands and all that, all that stuff. I can't tell you aside from that really what to do. Because at the end of the day, there's just, you know, this is a pandemic that we're all going through. Something we're all going through together. So I couldn't really, I can't really answer your question, to be honest. Do you think but, that all the athletes should get tested for the coronavirus, though, before they compete? That, yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I, that, of course. Yeah. That goes without saying. Yeah. But, um. That's just better to be safe than sorry. Not just for the, the guy we're fighting, but I think just for our, our, uh, our training camp. Because obviously you can't train by yourself, so it'll make, make sure we're all, we're all safe and healthy. And then on top of that, for your opponent, whoever you're going there with, he knows that you're, you're clean. You know that he's clean. Yeah. And I wouldn't enter a, a training camp unless I had done the, uh, the test again, just for it to come back negative. Absolutely. Well, we hope that uh, they can rebook that for you, Lyman. I can tell that you're, you're itching to get back in there. Um, and I know Bilal Muhammad's a great competitor. That would be a real fun, uh, fun fight for the fans. Yeah, it'd be an awesome fight. I can't wait for it. Hopefully it will happen. We'll see what happens. I thought you had reached out to Bilal afterwards. Did he send you a message back? I did. I, I uh, reached out on Twitter You know, shortly after the news that, uh, that I was out of the card. Um, I was just letting him know, you know, I hope he's well. God has a plan. And uh, one day we'll, we'll have our day. Uh, he reached back uh, very cordially. You know, he said, thank you. And I think that was it. You know, aside from that, the only communication left is just for us to fight. It's been a long time overdue. And I'm excited for that one if it happens. What do you think it does for society when these fights come back? I mean, a lot of people are looking for any sort of semblance of normalcy. Do you think that it's going to really help, I guess, the morale of people that are fans of this sport? Hell yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 a huge freaking fan of this sport, man. And not having any live fights for when, when was the last one? Middle middle of March. I mean, I'm like I'm chomping the bitch just to watch some fucking fights. <laughs> Sorry for my cursing, but uh, yeah, I, I'm going crazy just not being able to watch any any sports. I'm not even a sports fan. I want to watch sports. Like I, I don't like I don't boxing really, but um, yeah, I, I need sports to come back. Did you watch the NFL draft? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen plenty of stuff about it, but I didn't watch it. Yet. My idea for the NFL draft is they should have just done one pick a night and had live sports every night for like, do, do two rounds and you have 60 days of live sports. That's, that's a good idea, actually. That's a really good idea. Yeah, they should hire me as an advisor for the NFL. All right, guys, thank you for, uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, Lyman, it's great to see that you're, uh, that you're healthy and that your, uh, your girlfriend's healthy, your coach is healthy, and that you guys went, uh, pulled through this. I'm really sorry to hear about uh, the student, obviously, of your school. Uh, that's obviously horrible to hear. And uh, everybody who's going through this um, and those who have lost people, uh, it, it's been a really horrific situation for everybody. And I'm just happy to see that you uh, were able to pull through this uh, you know, as an individual, as for your, for your team. And I'm sure Shane is happy to have you next to him right now. Oh, yeah. Excited to be back. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the time, brother. All right, thanks for tuning into the TSN MMA show. We'll be back next week with another great show uh, where we will continue to look at UFC 249. Very exciting to have the UFC back, and we've got some more uh, fights on the horizon. Week in and week out. we got to fight on the, this one's on the 9th, and you got the 13th, the 16th, and the 23rd. Four fights in the, in the course of two weeks. Of course, that is if everything goes according to plan. Everything is followed in terms of health and safety. So there's still uh, we still have a lot to see. But uh, as long as this card goes off without a hitch, this UFC 249 card, we're in for a treat. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll uh, see you next week.